Hello, hey, welcome to a very, for the first time in some time, an optimistic film file. The film show for Optimistic Film Geeks by Optimistic Film Geeks. Hi and welcome. I'm Lee Ford, and of course you are. I'm 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 here. I'm Andy Meakin. <laughs> Hello, Andy Meakin. How are you? In a lot more of an optimistic frame of mind this week. Last week, as, as you can know from either listening to the podcast or seeing the video bit that I did on YouTube, which was a compilation of some of the highlights. It, I was a bit ranty last week. <laughs> you would you use the word highlights? I don't. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but what a week it's been. And you can tell in our voices there's this renewed sense of optimism. And and it, and it really feels like that, doesn't it? And we have, in if you're uh, a non-UK listener, we've been given what's called the roadmap out of lockdown and hopefully back into a better world. And you know what? Since the other day, I've noticed it considerably in, in other things. Uh, my phone started ringing about potential jobs and work coming up, and there just seems to be a sense that that we're going to get the world back into some semblance of an order by kind of July August time. But for for the cinema guys in us, that might be a little bit sooner. What was good about the roadmap is that there was always this worry that it was going to be a typical Boris rush job, and by this time next week everything would be open, and two two weeks later everything would be closed again because it was too soon. He's given a good time frame. And whilst, you know, ideally I'd love to go back to work next week, I've I've been saying for the past few months, it's going to be about May, isn't it? And we've been given a date that cinemas, if all goes to plan, cinemas and recreation and leisure facilities will be opening from May the 17th. So we're already talking at our cinema about the plans for when we reopen. And if it does go to plan, I mean, Black Widow's due out at the beginning of May. There's no confirmation whether that's going to move yet it's suspected that it might do but if it doesn't that means that when we open we will open already having black widow in the building peter rabbit 2 is due out fast and furious 9 free guy and cruella so that's a good solid lineup to capture that may bank holiday weekend at the end of may so it's very positive at the moment it's very optimistic we're filled with optimism we know that Things could go wrong at any moment. We know that we might switch on the news tomorrow and the whole world is in shutdown. But I don't know about you, but I I just, I, I'm feeling positive and forward thinking for the first time in quite a while. I, I get you. I get you. And as I said, I've had conversations literally within the last 24 hours that have indicated that there's a, there's a sense of confidence about things. And, um, you know, it's exciting and it, it's, it's a, it's strange. I don't know about you, but there's also, it feels like stepping out into a brave new world again, a little bit. I mean, I've got, haven't quite become um, entombed and <laughs> um, a sort of a, a lone gunman, but I have, I, 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 I do find it, I, I get a little nervous when I'm out and there are crowds around and uh, I had a wander the other day and it was busier than Piccadilly Circus and which surprised me, but I, I'm also, you know, I think it's, I think for a lot of people taking that step out into the big wide world again is while we're all looking forward to it, there's a certain amount of apprehension out there as well. Yeah. I mean, I'm finding it as well when I'm going for walks or going to the shop that I take wide berths around people. Yeah, me too. 
and it's because it's been ingrained into us over the past year to, you know, keep this distance. And I don't think, I think that that's now going to become something that society is going to be like as a whole. It's got, you know, it's only once you have a few drinks down at the pub, once the pubs are reopened, that those barriers are going to start to relax a bit more. But yeah, we're all nervous about going back, but we're all excited about it as well. It's such a hope. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a breath of fresh air. And talking of breath of fresh air, in this week's programme, we will be back up in the air looking at our deep dive of Superman 2. Andy's got the reviews from Netflix and other streaming services. Our look at last week's WandaVision. And of course, without any further ado, we have got the news. So what do you got first for us? You've got no rants this week, which is good, because I think we spent 20 minutes, wasn't it, on on last week's episode on a rant? Yeah, I mean, the news itself took about 45 minutes of last week's episode, whereas normally we try to aim around about the half hour mark. So there was definitely, we, we opened with a rant last week, we closed with a rant. And no, there's no rants this week, um, even though my first news item is to do with Zack Snyder. Because as you know... You, you are now pals, you're now talking again. I, I love Zack Snyder this year, so I'm being positive about him. Uh, we've got a date at last for his Army of the Dead. Now, we've been very excited for this film. We loved what he did with Dawn of the Dead. We thought he like really tackled the zombie apocalypse in a, in a great way, and he made a solid remake. And now he's getting to play in a zombie universe again with a heist movie, and we love the heist movie. So heists, zombies, Zack Snyder, three things that we've loved. May the 21st, it lands on Netflix. Now we have the date. We can get excited about this film that's cost eighty million to make. Wow! Uh, Dave Batista, Maury Hardwick, Anna de Laya, Reguera, Theo Rossi, Teague Notaro. I, I really like Teague Notaro. I've become quite a fan of her since she was introduced into uh, Star Trek Discovery. Right. Yeah. A great lineup of cast. There's loads of names in there, and all the buzz around it is that it's it's another fresh reinvigoration of the zombie franchise from Zack Snyder. That like Netflix are already planning spin-offs, prequels, cartoon, um, side projects to do with it. So there's a lot of hope behind this one. So clearly they've got faith in it as well. Yes. In addition, there was a really good interview piece on in Vanity Fair this past week, which is worth tracking down uh, with Zack Snyder. It's interviews him about like all his thoughts around Justice League, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, the fan base. And in it, Snyder confirms that Warner Brothers were ready to release the rough edit cut that he had ready for the fans. But Zack said no for reasons that sound vaguely familiar. In his words, I was like, that's a no, that's a hard no. And they're like, but why? You can just put up the rough cut. Snyder didn't trust their motivations. I go, here's why. Three reasons. One, you get the internet off your back, which is probably your main reason for wanting to do this. Two, you get to feel vindicated for making things right, I guess, on some level. And then three, you get a shitty version of the movie that you can point at and go, see, it's not that good anyway. So maybe I was right. Now, I remember that that was my take on it Yeah, about yeah, yeah. four or five months ago when talking about it, that the reason why they needed to do a re-edit and not release that original cut is that people like you and me would appreciate a rough cut. We would see it. We would see that it's a rough cut. We'd understand work prints. But the audience who've been campaigning for it will go, You've deliberately sabotaged it. All this extra money, which is reported between 70 and 80 million in order to touch it all up, it's for a valid reason so that Zach can actually release something that feels like a finished film and not a rough cut for the audience that wanted it who wouldn't understand what a rough cut was. So on the back end of that, Andy, uh, I read over the last week about uh, how disappointing 
uh, Wonder Woman 1984 had turned out to be. Now, and the reason I bring this up is, is there, other than the fan base, a huge audience for this movie? I'm not convinced. I know there's a lot of buzz online, and I've been... I've been hinting at this whenever people says, well, look how many tweets there have been relating to the Snyder Cut. Look how much activity there's been. Yeah. Remember snakes on a plane? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly my point. That was all over the internet. It was a huge phenomenon. Everyone was looking forward to it. And then it bombed and it flopped. I, You look on Twitter, it seems like there's a huge market for Zack Snyder's Justice League. You look on other social media like Facebook, and whenever it's brought up, you just get people saying, we've already seen this film three years ago. Who wants to watch an, a longer version of that rubbish film? So the general audience don't get it. So it is just for the fan base. Have they spent too much in doing it? We don't know. We won't know until it releases. The, it might be one of them that when it releases, all of a sudden, a lot of people get more interested in it and check it out. They need to convince the general public that this is not the film that they've already seen and this is the film that they were supposed to have seen. Yeah, interesting. I mean, uh, as far as I know, there's no UK distributor for it yet. There's no no platform for it in England. Yep. Um, on the topic of DC, the Blue Beetle movie has now got a director attached to it. Yeah, I saw that one. I just saw that, actually. Yeah, Angel Manuel Soto, who directed Charm City Kings. He's set to bring Blue Beetle to the screen now. Blue Beetle is he's one of the lesser known B-list comic book characters. He's not one of the big main pantheon in the same way that Iron Man was basically a B-lister of Marvel. So I get more excited when it's one of these um, under the radar kind of projects. Blue Beetle inhabited in that costume by three different characters over the years in the comics. This version of it is going to be based on the most recent incarnation. The Mexican-American teenager, Jamie Reyes who discovers a scarab that grafts itself to him and grants him armour, which enhances his strength and speed, grants him wings and weapons. Shooting for this begins in autumn, and this is going to be the first superhero movie with a Latino lead. Uh, yeah, I've not got much uh, knowledge for the later Blue Beetle. My Blue Beetle was Ted Cord out of the fantastic Justice League series, which was uh, the sort of the tongue-in-cheek version. Uh, I always thought this would have made a better TV series, but, you know... Until I see it, I have no idea what it's going to look like. But um, as you say, the kind of the B-list characters somehow they work a little bit better, and I they think have a lot that's more the, they're not yeah they've got that freedom. They're not bringing all the baggage of previous incarnations into it. And I think they, they can go anywhere they like with this. And and talking of um, uh, while we're in the superhero uh, avenue, for want of a better term, um, the Spider-Man cast have teased the internet with several titles. Uh, of what the next Spider-Man movie is going to be called. And the, the only one I've seen, I didn't know there was more than one, was Spider-Man Phone Home. Uh, initially, initially, it was Tom Holland released the Spider-Man Go Home, that Phone Home title, and saying, like, I can finally reveal this news to you. And literally within five minutes, another member of the cast sent out his social media one with a different home-related pun. And then another member, about an hour later, did another one. And people went... You're winding us up, aren't you? But this suggests that they're leading up to a proper reveal of what it's going to be. Yeah. So one of them might be correct. One of them might be. They might all just be red herrings. One thing that some people have point, pointed out is that the images with the names on them each have a different colour-coded Spider-Man logo. Okay, I've not looked that clearly yet. Those colour codings kind of match up to three colour codings of uh, three villains who... Mm -hmm represent parts of the sinister six and the speculation now are we going to get three more titles thrown out with three different colors 
And this, what they're really revealing is not the title of the film, but that the Sinister Six is getting introduced in this film. Well, good, uh, good bit of speculation. And of course, it is just only speculation because at this point we don't know. But it's I like how they are, you know, they're, they're stringing us along and having fun with it. Um, talking about other pieces yeah. of casting, uh, uh, we go back to DC now. Uh, Black Adam has added Marwan Kenzari to the uh, to the cast. Uh, I don't know who he's playing at this stage, uh, but you do remember him. He was the villain in Guy Ritchie's Aladdin from last year. Or was it the year before? Yeah. Do we still count 2020 as a year or is it like a like a long vacation? I genuinely don't know. I mean, on my Facebook feed the other day, it popped up that this time last year, I went to see Baby Metal in Manchester and it felt like so much longer <laughs> since I could actually go to a gig. And it was just like, oh, wow, it's only been a year, yet it feels like a lifetime. So I've lost all train of time related thought these days. And other casting news as well, uh, which I'll let you talk about, is uh, the casting of Supergirl in the Flash movie. Yes, um, Sasha Kelly has been cast as Supergirl in the Flash movie, and I know nothing about her. No, um, she's uh, an Hispanic actress. I know that much. Yep. Uh, there was a little cute video that the director put up telling her that she'd got the job uh, by holding up the costume, the the classic S, and her bursting into tears. It was really, really cute. I'm, I'm excited for the Flash movie because I'm hoping that it's going to work to get Superman back on track, but we will talk about that later when we talk about Superman 2. Okay, what else you got? Zoe Saldana is going to be a pirate on Netflix. She's been a pirate before. She was in uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, the very first one. Now, this Netflix project is called The Bluff, and it's got nothing to do with Pirates of the Caribbean. It's going to have a very different tone. It's set in the Cayman Islands in the 1800s, and Saldana will play Ursel, a Caribbean woman whose secret past is revealed when the island is invaded by buccaneers. And it's directed by Frankie Flowers, and it's it's going to be less action-adventure and more gritty Netflix approach for piratical-themed entertainment. And, and just 10 points for getting piratical into a sentence. Sticking with Netflix, Spike Lee is producing Gordon Hemingway and the Realm of Cthulhu for Netflix. Oh, is that as in the HP Lovecraft-connected Cthulhu? Yes, it's inspired by Lovecraftian uh, Cthulhu mythos. And Stefan Bristol, who gave us See You yesterday, is going to direct the tale, which is set in East Africa in 1928, where a roguish black American gunslinger, Gordon Hemingway of the title, teams up with an elite warrior princess, Zanabi of Ethiopia, to rescue the kidnapped region from an ancient evil. That ancient evil obviously being cultists and monsters of Cthulhu mythos. Love Cthulhu. Wow. Uh, And talking of horror, there's not a month goes by without the announcement of a Stephen King adaptation. And there is a new, kinder Stephen King adaptation in the works. Yeah, uh, well, a Richard Bachman um, adaptation. Running Man. Now, interestingly, when this news broke, loads of people didn't quite understand what was happening because they started moaning (laughs) about remakes and why remake a classic Arnie film. Edgar Wright is going to be bringing The Running Man to the screen. And whilst, yes, we've kind of had an adaptation of Stephen King's book to the screen with Arnie in the lead role, it's not the book. <laughs> no, it bears scant resemblance to the Richard Bachman stroke Stephen King uh, novel. You wouldn't, you couldn't put the two side by side and recognise it uh, apart from the idea of the running man character. Even that was different in the movie. He was a cop, wasn't he, uh, Arnie yep. in that? 
Uh, and the big screen version was originally directed by Paul Michael Glazer, who used to play Starsky and Starsky and Hutch. Yep. I've got love for the Arnie version, but I've got love for the Richard Bachman story. And I, 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 I separate the two. But I am interested to see what Edgar Wright can do with the Stephen King material. And he's going to play it closer to the source, although I do suspect that in this day and age, the closing moments of the story will be slightly changed. I'm not going to spoil it for people who've never read the book, but it could cause some controversy if it ends the same way. Yes, yes, indeed. Um, On the subject of Stephen King. Oh, there's more. Apple have revealed their slate for Apple TV Plus for 2021. They've added another program. They've they've added another program. I mean, they're, they're a bit lacking in ongoing content but the content that they're delivering is pretty good but a stephen king story lisa's story is in there that's uh, getting released uh, physical with rose byrne which is an 80s dark comedy mosquito coast has been reinvented for a tv series okay. and a musical comedy called schmigadoon which clearly they're they're playing on brigadoon there for the title and losing alice is also going to be in there and there's also been brief shots of the returning shows such as the morning show ted lasso and servant so they're expanding their content a bit i still i'm not convinced that apple plus deserves a monthly subscription at this point in time yeah i know i know i know exactly what you mean i'm basically cherry picking i'm paying for a month and then canceling it for a couple of months until stuff builds up and then pay for a month but what I'm discovering is the quality is really good. And I'm really interested to see how Lisey's story, the Stephen King adaptation, is going to play on their channel. Because from the quality wise of it, I'm expecting good things. I've got a bit of casting news. Uh, Daisy Ridley is on for the new thriller, The Marsh King's Daughter. I guess she had to play somebody's daughter. Not exactly casting news, but Danny Elfman is scoring Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. Sticking with comic book adaptations and Mark Miller comics are a mixed bag. Mm, yeah. His Jupiter's Legacy series with Frank Quietly is a very standout title, even though it's quite derivative of similar kind of projects. Well, after the Netflix deal a few years back, and it was 2017 that Netflix bought Miller World yeah, Comics yeah, line. The idea they were going to do Nemesis as well, which I yep. read and, and wasn't overly impressed by. And uh, his kind of take on Flash Gordon, which I never read. And uh, I'm, that was as really you say, good. Mark Miller's a, a, a bit of a mixed bag at the best of times. But there's been a lot of anticipation about the TV series of Jupiter's Legacy being made. Well, we finally have a date that it's going to land. And that is May the 7th, so we've not got long to wait. Um, It's a nine-episode series which sees the world's first generation of superheroes looking to their children to continue their legacy. But the younger powers don't quite live up to the high standards, and their godlike parents aren't quite happy with um, how they're not taking things seriously. If you think the boy's style of adult content and the deconstruction of the superhero mythologies, but without the splatter and gore, it's more a look at like Kingdom Come style of DC gods and humans approach. That's what makes this story interesting. And it's got potential in a nine episode series to really, really be something that stands alone. I'm very hit or miss with Mark Miller, but his Jupiter series I've I've stuck with and I've really enjoyed from start to finish. Yeah, I, that's the only one I, I stayed with, to be perfectly honest. Um, Gareth Evans was all over the news at one point when he made The Raid and then he made The Raid 2. He made The Apostle for Netflix, which I didn't see, and I heard it was a bit of a mixed bag. But now he signed an exclusive deal to make films for the company and for his first trick under the new arrangement, he's setting up an action thriller, Havoc, with Tom Hardy to star. Um, Evans is on to write and direct, and it's a story set after a drug deal gone wrong uh, with the bruised detective played by Tom Hardy who must fight his way through a criminal underworld 
to rescue a politician's estranged son while unravelling a deep web of corruption. Something to look forward to there. Now, something definitely to look forward to. Paddington 3 well, yes. is officially happening. You know what? I, I, I Why that pleases me for, for, for many, many reasons. And it will also get... This will tie in with my neat thing. And um, after watching Greenland and after watching uh, several other films that have really kind of made me a little bit anxious with the, the world that we're in right now, um, I, I, I'm just looking forward to something that it will be just an absolute joy and an absolute full-on punch of positivity. This is where it turns out that the plot line is that Paddington's in isolation because he's got COVID. <laughs> and... <laughs> and, and there you go, you've just destroyed my, my dream. There's no idea as to what the story's going to be. We do suspect that Paul King is not going to direct this time because he did state a few months ago that he wants to step away from directing, but he will remain on board as a producer and consultant. But I remember when the first film was in production and people were so vehemently against it and then it landed and everyone fell in love with it, because how can you not fall in love with Paddington? Absolute joy. From Paddington to something so completely removed from Paddington, and that's Ari Aster and A24 are prepping his next feature film, which is called Development Boulevard. And Joaquin Phoenix is lined up to star in a film that is described as an intimate decade-spanning portrait of one of the most successful entrepreneurs of all time. And that is all that we know about the story. But coming from Ariasta, I'm expecting it to be a bit twisted and very messed up. Okay, he's tackled gangsters, he's tackled uh, spies, he's tackled uh, guys who live in lamps, uh, myths and legends. But now Guy Ritchie is directing the Ministry of Ungentlemanly Warfare. Yes, I'm quite excited about this. I am unashamedly a Guy Ritchie fan. Uh, even his weaker films, I've kind of got some love for. Ungentlemanly Warfare, because that's all I'm going to call it. I'm not going to go for the full title all the time. Is a World War II black ops tale. It's been adapted from the book by Damien Lewis about how Churchill created a black ops squad that could be plausibly denied and was populated with criminals and rogues and invented a whole new style of warfare. Described as part Dirty Dozen, part Inglorious Bastards. I think with Guy Ritchie's approach, you kind of know what to expect from this. I mean, I wasn't keen on the gentleman, but um, I'll certainly give this a go. Hey, did you see um, the trailer for Cruella by the, by any chance? I didn't check the trailer for Cruella. It looks very fun. Um, and I just noticed when you did your uh, Sunday night Twitter uh, meet that uh, yep. Emma Stone came up in that. And I just wondered if you'd seen the trailer for that. It looks, it looks excellent, very stylized. Uh, and did you also notice Mortal Kombat's got a trailer online? <laughs> oh well that one definitely i've, I've re-watched <laughs> that trailer about 50 times april the 16th is the launch day on hbo and in theaters cinemas aren't going to be open and that's the only disappointment that i've got from it but what i saw in that trailer made me love it can't wait it looks so good and f you know one director that we've really missed who's that that's brett ratner so is he making a film because he must be now out of director jail because he he's, it was a little bit notorious and uh, and there were certain allegations made against him. Um, but uh, it happens to everybody. Eventually, you you get a uh, you play the card and you get out of director jail. To be honest with you, I hadn't even realised he'd been in director's jail since 2017 because I've never really gravitated towards his products. Uh, but anyway, he's back. He's out, and he's planning to bring a long time passion project to the screen. Has he now? Which uh, passion project would that be? A biopic. About Millie Vanilli. Is the world ready? I ask myself. I, I, I think this could be world shattering. This could be <laughs> this could be awards winning, world shattering, revel revelatory. 
I, I don't get it. I don't get Millie Vanilli. I don't get the fascination with them. I, I don't get Brett Ratner either. So it's actually a, it's a perfect mix. <laughs> yeah, so this can sink its way into some streaming service and be buried in all the lineup at some point in the next couple of years. Um, did you know there's a, a Nightmare Before Christmas uh, sequel novel in the works? Oh, yeah, I did. I did pick up on that. I didn't read much into it, but I'm wondering whether there's need for any more story in that one. Well, it'll make Disney very happy, of course it is. And uh, it's <laughs> nearly it's nearly 30 years since, well, it's now become uh, a festive perennial, hasn't it? And and the, the yes. neat trick about it is that you can also see it at Halloween, let alone Christmas. Um, yes. So it reports that the Wicked Deep author Shea Earnsworth has been hired to write a book that shifts the spotlight to Sally, the ragdoll character while also continuing the story after the events of the film. The plot sees a happily married Jack and Sally getting their lives momentarily turned upside down when Sally accidentally lets loose a mysterious villain in Halloween Town. Dun, dun, dun. That's all we know. And I think that pretty much rounds up... The news. So, hope you're enjoying this week's show, and if you are, please hit that subscribe button uh, and drop us a line. You can find us at... On Twitter, at Filmfile UK, on Instagram, Filmfile UK, or email us with anything, any suggestions, any films that you love, anything you want us to talk about, podcast at Filmfile.uk. So, if you are uh, a regular, and uh, hi, good to see you again. Hopefully soon we'll be able to pop round and do the podcast from your house, <laughs> which would be great, wouldn't it? So that's what we could do. Is we could do that as a prize, as long as it's you know, if it's out of town, maybe we'd have to discuss it. Yeah, if you win this prize, you have to pay our transportation. You do realize <laughs> <Yeah>. that. <laughs> you can join in the podcast. We'll knit round to your house and record it there. Have we started something? Oh, that'd be nice if we have. So. Um, You'll know that if you're a regular listener that we have been doing a series of deep dives into films that, well, kind of classics and giving us an opportunity to discuss in a lot of detail uh, films that we've loved uh, and films that we think are worthy of discussion. Uh, And I suggested this week that we look at Superman the movie and Andy went, (laughs) yeah, great idea. And then followed back with a, uh, with a text going, we did that. Um, last year episode 16 <laughs> episode 16 and that was it that even last year or was it before it was last year it was uh just as we'd gone into lockdown because I, I only twigged on it because i've started putting together the next little compilation of just the reviews and the very <laughs> next episode that we're up to because i've already done up to episode 15 episode 16 i've listened to it and we do Starman, and then all of a sudden it's like in 1978, a film came out that made us believe a man can fly. And I was like, oh, no, we've done it. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we quickly um, rethought the plan and we said Superman 2. And it's uh, 1980, superhero film. And this is where you get into uh, an awful lot of discussion. The movie that came out in the cinemas was directed by Richard Lester, uh, written by Mario Puzo and David and Leslie Newman from a story based on Puzo. It starred, of course, uh, the fantastic Christopher Reeve again as Superman. Uh, Gene Hackman, uh, this time joined by Terrence Stamp. Uh, Ned Beatty was in it. Sarah Douglas, Margot Kidder and Jack O'Halloran. And um, the film was um, was a, a big success. But then we kind of discovered that it wasn't the film that we thought we were going to see. For those who had been following the Superman saga way back in the 70s at known. Uh, and there was a very good making of it, but which I, I had at the time that Superman and Superman 2 were being shot simultaneously uh, with Richard Donner at the helm. 
And then suddenly the movie comes out and it is now a Richard Lester. So we're going to be talking about instead of Superman directed by Richard Lester. Well, let's talk about the director's cut by Richard Donner. The three villains from Krypton have taken over the White House. Now, kneel before Sod. Metropolis is almost in ruins. And Superman has lost his powers. Or has he? As the adventure continues in Superman 2, rated PG. So uh, tensions rose between the original director, Donna, and the producers, in which a decision was made to stop filming the sequel, uh, of which 75% had already been completed, uh, and finished the first film. The film had gone over budget, was going over schedule. Unfortunately, Donna was fired from it, and uh, Richard Lester uh, was brought in to finish the film. Now, Lester had worked with the Salkins, the producers on it, on the Three Musketeers film. He had a, a much more quirkier sense of humour than than Donna and took the film back to almost a, a kind of a, a, a slightly more uh, uh, a campier approach. Even though if you watch Superman, the, the movie, again, it does have a, it has a lot of fun that ran through it. But what it did have that Donna brought to it was a lot of heart. So we said that 75% of the film had been completed. However, when Richard Lester took over the film, several members of the cast and crew declined to return, including Marlon Brando. And so Lester was uh, had to reshoot at least a lot of the film that was already in the can and the budget went up to about 54 million which was ridiculous for that time but it did gross 190 million um, worldwide box office this is all very familiar i mean you could literally take superman 2 and change the name to justice league and you've got exactly the same story as to how this came about the the studio basically lost confidence in the director and then got someone else in to change the tone change the style and deliver something different. Yeah, absolutely. And and change the vision as well. We're going to talk about it overall with the Donna version, but we have to pay reference to the problems that Lester's involvement actually created. I mean, I, don't get us wrong. Love what Les, Le, Richard Lester does. Loved his Three Musketeers films. Love his style. Love his humour. As, as a kid, couldn't tell anything. Absolutely loved it. You've got Zod and his cohorts being released from their eternal prison, arriving on Earth, and then finding out that the son of their condemner, Kal-El, the son of Jor-El, is actually on that planet and they want to get revenge. Superman falling in love, Lois finally recognising who he is. He decides to sacrifice everything for her, becoming human at the wrong time. Uh, you know, it's a great story set up and we embraced it as a kid. But when I've gone back to this as an adult... I've lost some love of it because I can tell it's a mash of two different visions. And yeah. Lester's style of campy comedy and sometimes farce don't balance well with Donna's heart and vision that he had in there. The opening Eiffel Tower sequence, no, I've got no love for. And the Times Square confrontation between Zod and Superman is given a comical approach to it when it shouldn't be. It should be quite terrifying for the humans on the ground. We shouldn't have comical moments of people having their umbrellas whipped away from them and, you know, someone in a phone box falling over. Yeah, we don't need the jokiness, and that's what damages it. Yeah, I totally agree. And so eventually we got a chance to see what the original version would be like, albeit with rough-cut footage 
and not being able to get it right in the Donner Cut. Yeah, so the Donner Cut came out in uh, 2006. So it was a, a re-edit that stuck pretty closely to the original script that they were working to. Now, uh, they did have to include a couple of shots that Lester, in, um, Lester had shot uh, just to keep the continuity going. But there's a lot of scenes and it plays out as a, as a, as a really a very, very different film. It remains, um, for me, the true follow-up to Superman the movie. It has that unique vision that that Donna had for the film, and it's it, it's basically an alternative version of what we should or would have seen. Whether Donna would have uh, would have stayed on it. it features an original opening and uh, an original ending. It features Brando again because he was largely replaced by Susanna York, who played Kal-el's mother, Lara. So there are certain scenes which uh, had to be newly created and they were done. And this is probably my only bugbear with, with the Donner cut. They were done in kind of the style of the film uh, from that era. And I think that they could, and especially now how, how um, seamless um, CGI can be added into a film. And we saw that. If you, if you ever remember the uh, Star Trek, the motion picture director's cut. Yes. It could be seamlessly added to it, uh, including having to use an early screen test of one of the pivotal scenes that featured Christopher Reeve and Margot Kidder. Uh, and it was never, uh, Donna never properly shot this. So they use uh, an, an earlier version. And it does stand out because of, of some continuity errors. And um, those are little things now, if they wanted to readdress, could uh, uh, could cover up quite easily and, and make it even more superior film. But I've got a lot of love for it. It captures ultimately the heart of of what superman the movie was all about which was was donna's vision of it and having watched superman the movie again in the last few weeks boy i just i just love it and um i've got to catch up with it i've got to catch up with superman 2 the donna cut because uh that will always be my go-to now of superman 2 when, like i said when when we were kids and we saw superman 2 at the cinema you didn't notice all the flaws. It's only as you get older that you spot the problems. And I think that, you know, the kids will appreciate Superman 2 a lot more than what the adults will. However, because of it's, it's like you say, it's using test footage, it's using like rough cuts, etc., to fill in the gaps. People who aren't immersed into film love might not quite get it as well because it does look rough around the edges. It would be great to see, like you say, given some money to polish up these days do like what we've seen with blade runner where it's got about 400 different cuts yeah. you know let's let's get a final cut of superman let's start that hashtag campaign hashtag re-release the, the donna cuts overall though superman 2 builds on the framework that the first film gave us the first film was a cracking origin story it's the origin story to define what origin story should be and then superman 2 went and now you get villains who can actually hold a fight against him and zod yeah. is perfect terence stamp even in the theatrical version there's no taking away from terence stamp's performance throughout that he is iconic his whole kneel before zod line uh, it's a charming story but then you've got the solid heart the lois and clark relationship which works so well once again thanks to the chemistry of christopher reeve and margot kidder who were absolutely perfect together i'll always choose the donna cut myself over the theatrical to go back to and due to the story changes that were made some moments don't quite match up the time reversal finale we'd already seen at the end of the first film because it was shoehorned in at the end of the first film 
when they realised they weren't going to let Donna continue all the way through. It was supposed to be... A cliffhanger, was it? Yeah. It was supposed to be that when it comes to... The rewinding of the time was going to be at the end of the second film and it rewinds to events of the first film to undo everything that took place. Even though a lot of people think that it's it's him spinning the earth backwards. It's not. It's rewinding time. It's just visually shown like that. Please stop annoying me on this subject. Uh, but yeah, it, I, I've got a lot of love for it. I'll let you um, wrap up on Superman 2 before we mention where the franchise went afterwards. Yeah, I was going to say that the original ending, and this is what we'd all been led to believe for those of us who were, were following it in, in the magazines at the time, that Superman was going to end on a... Uh, a cliffhanger, and that cliffhanger was going to be the release of the villains. And as you said, they tied it up. They brought the ending from the second film, brought it forward, which works, which works beautifully. And and uh, it shows the power of Superman. So you needed the villains to be able to knock him down. And and the hardest thing about Superman is, well, is the fact that he, he's impenetrable. But what he what his weakness is 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 not kryptonite. It's it's his human, his, his human side, his humanity, his love for Lois. And, and that's what made it such a beautiful, beautiful film and gave it heart. And, and that was going to be continued throughout uh, Donna's original vision of, of Superman 2. Now, it's in there because it was in the script. But as you say, there's this jokey element that, that Lester brings to it. And it's much more campy and, and it's much more broader because that is... That is is Lester's style. It would have been interesting because at one point Guy Hamilton was uh, was going to take over the reins for Superman two because Lester was busy on another movie, but scheduling ended up with with Lester doing it. So I still think there's room for, as, as you said, a kind of ultimate cut of the Donner cut and and embracing that uh, all the elements that we can now bring to it with uh, a whole fantastic use of of, of of modern effects which then when this came out in 2006 have changed considerably so even things like you know changing the glasses can work so so much better so uh as, as i said this is probably for where we are now the definitive superman 2 after superman 2 obviously the studio kept in the vein of the campy comedy approach with Superman 3 and Richard Lester had a chance to actually make a film with his own tone throughout it and it is Superman 3 for all its flaws at least it's got the singular vision throughout at least it doesn't feel like a mash of ideas however the problems with Superman 3 the biggest problem comes by Richard Pryor's involvement because apparently his lines were placeholders in the script they expected him to come onto set and ad lib and improvise around stuff and make it funny. And when they kept telling him, make it funny, make it funny, it was like, no, you've paid me to be an actor, not a writer. So I'm just yeah. going to read the lines that you've given me. And that's why it's possibly one of Richard Pryor's worst performances on screen. I mean, he was generally quite funny. If you saw his stand up stuff, if you saw him in interviews, he, he's got wit, he's got panache. But in this, he was just there. They could have had anyone saying those lines because they were not his mouth. Uh, there's still some memorable moments in Superman 3. The opening scenes work. I, I love the comedy approach when it's just Lester working on his own stuff. And the opening introduction of Superman 3 plays well with his kind of flippancy and comedy approach. And the junkyard battle for the control of the psyche is pure comic book brilliance. I absolutely love that battle for control. Good Clark versus bad Superman. Marvellous stuff. But product placement is heavy in the third film. 
a video game missile attack game is thrust in there for controlling of weapons to shoot Superman with for a game that never came out. And the whole thing is just a mess. Yeah. But it is better than Quest for Peace. Yeah, well, Quest for Peace is, uh, well, what can you say about it? It was it was supposed to go back and find the heart of the Donna film, um, but it missed the boat due to the fact it was released by Canon, and Canon just halved the budget during filming. It was shot in Milton Keynes. Okay, so you can't blame Milton Keynes for it being a disaster of a film. It's all over the place effects-wise. In fact, they nick uh, some effect shots from Superman 2, I noticed in there. It had all the potential to do something interesting, but it is an absolute dire film. And it, it amazed me that they got Gene Hackman back for it. And and I know Reeve actually directed a couple of action sequences. He directed the moon sequence. It had a sense that it could have been something, a real return to form, but it is, it's an absolute mess. And you can see literally the, the strings holding the whole thing up because the budget was, was just halved and the, there wasn't enough to play with. It's interesting watching Quest for Peace on the home release if you have the commentary track on by the writer Mark Rosenthal and he spends the whole of the film pointing out what had been changed from the actual script and why it didn't work on screen as a result. And there's things like Nuclear Man has his long fingernails like painted gold and he roars and he like growls and everything. And you're like, what the hell's going on? And it's apparently because he was supposed to be a shapeshifter. And in the fight sequences, he's supposed to be transforming into beasts. Right. I didn't know that. Haven't got the budget for that, but we'll keep the claws on so he can still claw you. Okay. What's he going to be saying? Well, let's stick to the dialogue. Yeah, the dialogue is Berg runts, Berg rowls. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why it comes across as like, what is going on? You don't, it doesn't make any sense because all the elements that when they change them to cheapen it, they didn't think, we kind of need to rewrite the script at the same time while we're doing this. They just went, no, still go with what's on script. It's a, it's a great film to watch with the commentary just to get an insider look at how things can go so drastically wrong when the idea was so right. And like you say, the story was supposed to be returned to the, the roots of the franchise. It was supposed to be going for that more serious approach, but it failed. Check it out. Check it out with the commentary. I dare you. <laughs> okay, so then we have to jump on because this feels like it is the next in the series, which uh, Brian Singer's Superman Returns, which is, in in all honesty, a direct sequel, and it is, in all honesty, a return to the Richard Donner vision of of Superman. Even so much that they use Marlon Brando again by intercutting some sequences that hadn't been used in the original Donner cut. They cast an actor very well in my opinion that had that that same kind of style and delivery as christopher reeve in yeah. brendan routh which unfortunately as the film didn't take off as the way it was supposed to kind of was left brendan routh a little bit high and dry there's a lot i like about it uh, and the fact that it does play in the in the donna universe as such it pretty much hits all the beats of donna's film if you play the two films side by side it follows the same pattern I remember almost being in tears like when I saw it for the first time on the big screen because it was hitting all the emotional core that reminded me of when I was a youngster watching the original one. And the music, like you say, Brandon Routh, not, loads of people focused on the fact that he looked like Christopher Reeve, but they're missing the point. He didn't just look like him. He, he expressed everything in the same way he could do that like convincing that he's two different characters that Christopher Reeve was so great at doing Kevin Spacey was a nice darker edged Luther 
yeah. still obsessed with um, you know, building land. up a land portfolio. But uh, <laughs> but he was twisted and dark. The problem with this film is for me mainly Bosworth as Lois Lane. Yeah, she's not a full blooded Lois Lane. She's a bit a bit simpy all the way through, uh, and she's 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 weak. And there's not much in the way of chemistry between her and, and Brendan Routh. And then there's the inclusion of the child aspect, and and that's what slows the film down. And the fact that that Superman never really gets to be Superman. He never gets to have that 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 big big fight scene, which would be so much easier to do. So instead of looking at uh, remaking some of the best elements out of out of Superman the movie. I think it would have been nicer to see a, a remake that was closer to Superman 2. And the second half just doesn't pay off. The setup worked wonderfully. Um, the fact that Superman's not been on Earth for so long. Um, the return to the Donner universe and the Donner style. But then it goes south by not having having Superman be super. I read um, a good few years back, I read the details of what the planned follow-up film was going to be and a lot of the things that are, you say are problems would have been paying off in the next film the the second film was going to be more like superman 2 that he's up against enemies that he can fight against and it gets the action and the sequel was still in the pipeline for a few years later up until the dark knight came out and dc went this is what people want they want dark superheroes but the sequel was plans to delve into brainiac and brainiac was apparently going to be taking control of his son and he's put into the moral quandary of in order to save the Earth, he might have to kill his son. Right. When I read all those details of the script, like script notes, I found it on a website and like found like this is the notes of where the script was going to go. This is the story ideas that Singer had. He had like three or four films that he wanted to map out, but the second one was going to be the big, huge one. And I just thought, such a shame that we didn't get that. Yeah. And, and also the fact that people write it off as being a box office disappointment. No, it did really well. Yeah, and and did exceptionally well on uh, home release as well. So it, it unfortunately got cancelled, and we jump ahead then to Man of Steel. So you and I saw Man of Steel together. Uh, I remember, and I I brought my dad to the screening because my dad absolutely uh, we bonded over over Superman, and I take him to see Superman Returns. So I brought my dad along to to see Man of Steel. I remember walking out. And there was a, a few other critics and uh, we all sat around and we talked about it and we all felt amazingly underwhelmed by Man of Steel. There's some positives within the film. I don't want to like make out that I absolutely despise the film and it's the worst thing ever made because it's far from it. Cavill is a good Superman. Yes, agreed. He's He looks the part and he could be a great Superman in the right film. And Zod, Zod is represented in such an interesting way by Michael Shannon. And he's a villain that you can kind of understand his motives. And that's a good villain for me. And then you get the shots of Krypton that open the film. And it's beautifully alien landscape and technologies. And so much visually is right in there. But it's the morality of the character, the lead character, Superman, that it loses me. And not because of the neck snap. Every time that I say that I, I struggle with the morality of Superman, they're like, oh, well, he's got to snap his neck. It's like, no, no, no. no. I get him snapping Zod's neck because he, he had to do that to save the planet. It was it was the moral dilemma that I said that the second um, Superman Returns film would have tackled with his son, that he has to put humans before his own species. It's the death of Jonathan Kent. And it's the fact that he could have saved him 
but he was basically told, don't save me because you might put yourself in trouble. And it changes them by him not saving a, a beloved family member. Because let's be honest, you'd sacrifice yourself for a beloved family member. It turns his core moralistic teaching from being that you can't save everyone that it used to be to you don't have to save anyone. And that's where it lost me because I could not relate to a hero who would not save a family member. That's the point of the film that I switched off and went, this is not for me. This is not my Superman. Um, we're in total agreement with that because I, I kind of dropped out a little bit earlier. There, now, there are elements that I, I love. And uh, what, I, what I did like about it was the sort of sense of, of um, iconography about the younger Clark Kent growing up. The way that Zack Snyder shot that uh, was was absolutely beautiful, and and I and I like the story structure and the way the story was told, and I think this is where the, the MCU version of Spider Man did it right. Was we didn't have to go back and revisit the origin because we've seen it so many times. We'd seen it on TV if you remember. There'd been Smallville, yeah. uh, there'd even been the the uh, Lois and Clark series, and it just it it. It just wrong foots itself every way. I agree with Cavill. Uh, I'm not so invested in in the in the Zod character. I think the uh, next snap was had finally take me out completely out of the film. The uh, destruction porn that is the the last third of the movie is unnecessary. I know it kind of gets it it, it gets addressed in Batman v Superman, but it, it was it was dreadful to watch. The, I didn't like the openings on Krypton and the the changes of the origin. Maybe because I'm I'm so involved in in the Donner version, which absolutely got it spot on. And watching it again, uh, it it is an absolutely spot on origin story. Um, I thought the cast was great. I just don't think they were given enough to do. Cosner was a fantastic Jonathan Kent, but the the moral dilemma issue uh, d- didn't make any sense to me, and still doesn't, and uh, reflectively, and it. it and ultimately, what was missing and what was was heart, that sense of lightness was missing because Superman he should be a joyous character, even when he's in he's um, he's in jeopardy. But the fact that um, this this huge overstatement of, of mass destruction, there was never any sort of there was never much light and shade in this movie. And I didn't even buy the relationship uh, between Lois and Clark. It's just a clunky script. And it's yeah. uh, and it's kind of clunkily directed as well, and and that's where Zack Snyder fails for me. He can do beautiful shots, but when it comes to light and shade in storytelling, I I think that that Zack Snyder misses the boat with it, and everything it has to be in in your face. He can do epic, but he can't do heart. Yeah, as the Snyder films have highlighted, uh, the S on the chest is a symbol of hope, and I still hold out hope that Superman will return at some point. My Superman will return at some point. I'd love a reboot. I'd love a reboot that keeps Cavill to spring from the ashes of the Flash Flashpoint movie and bring it back to the classic comic, ditching the new 52 aesthetics that the DC universe kind of started with and go for that return to how Superman used to be, like you say, a symbol of positivity, a symbol of brightness in a dark universe. Fingers crossed. That's what we'll eventually get. I'd love to see Cavill come back in that rebooted universe. Let's see what the future holds. And that's it for our coverage of Superman. Um, Andy, what have you seen in the last week? Because to be honest, I've seen absolutely, uh, well, bugger all really. Uh, but I 
uh, saying that, I did watch one of your uh, reviews from last week and absolutely loved it. The Map of Tiny Perfect Things. Um, yeah. Thought it was beautiful. Absolutely beautiful yeah. movie. Loved every second. Took um, a few minutes to get into it and where it was going. But once it hits its stride, uh, again, talking of stuff that's joyous, I, I just thought it was a, a beautifully joyous film and, and really enjoyed it. And uh, it was bright and it was optimistic and it had something to say. Uh, and it goes in a direction I didn't expect it to go. Uh, so thank you for that. I think it, I thought it was a marvellous film. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Uh, my recommendation this week, my main review this week, is Flora and Ulysses that landed on Disney Plus last weekend. We were going to watch it and um, it was a family film, but we didn't get around to it. We rewatched uh, Fred Decker's Monster Squad. <laughs> now, it's one of those films which isn't a classic, but... I've got a lot of time for it. It's kind of, if you've not seen it, it's Goonies meets uh, the Universal yeah. Monsters, except they are kind of a play on the Universal Monsters. And it's just it's just wonderfully 80s. And it, it, it's it's just a great little film. I know it was cut to death when it came out, and, and that now hit me more than anything else and how short the running time is. And having read the original script, there's some some key sequence which have gone. So it, it is really a pared down version. And it also gave my son nightmares, which I thought was fantastic. <laughs> and, and you need that first film to give you a nightmare. Yeah, for, for me, it was Hammer House of Horror that gave me nightmares as a kid. But uh, I think that says a lot about my upbringing. But yeah, in between watching episodes of The Muppet Show, I spotted Flora and Ulysses landed on Disney Plus. So I popped it on for the family. And it was me, the wife and me daughter who ended up watching it. And I expected to just be mildly entertained, a bit of distraction in the corner while I'm doing other things. But I was more than entertained and was actually utterly charmed by the film. And there was a few resounding belly laughs and chuckle fits thrown in for good measure. Superheroes, stand watch when danger closes in and save those in need. But they have one thing in common. They never show up in the real world. Until Ulysses. Every superhero comes to us with a purpose. We don't always see it at first. Because we don't always know where to look. Flora! What is this? I am Ulysses. Born anew. Holy unanticipated occurrences! Did you type this? He's a superhero. But do you have any enemies? I'm here about the squirrel. Danger lurks everywhere. Is he? He's flying. There was a change in the air. And the world was filling with excitement. Who's hungry? One now! Come on! People look to the skies for someone to save them. So the universe sent us... Ulysses. Can you talk? Okay, that's not really talking, but still! The film sees comic book fan Flora, whose father is an aspiring comic book creator and mother a romance novelist, 
Flora daydreams about super beings amongst us, and when a squiddle is accidentally sucked up by an out-of-control garden tidybot, her whole life turns upside down as she believes the squiddle, which she names Ulysses, has gained superpowers. Ben Schwartz and Alison Hannigan are having fun throughout as the father and mother, and the young Matilda Lawler in the lead role as Flora is not as irritating as most child actors tend to be, although her quirky, hysterically blind neighbour William, played by Benjamin Mainsworth, is kind of grating at times and mostly takes up space, only shining on a couple of moments. But this film really, really grabbed me when Danny Pudi popped up as an animal control guy, and he's basically playing Abed, the animal control guy. This <laughs> is just a variation on his character that he's already played before, and he is so much fun. He is vi- he does visual comedy brilliantly, and he's got quirky moments, and he's basically trying to track down this squiddle because it could it could have rabies, and there's a big ongoing gag about rabies, rabies, rabies throughout the whole film. Sounds weird, but it makes sense when you watch it. Okay. The film is snappy. It's fun. It's a treat for the family. There's some puns and gags in there that the kids won't get, but older audiences will pick up on. And the film has one of the best visual gags relating to Titanic I've seen on film. It's a throwaway shot towards the end of the film that adds a perfect hilarity to close off a well-paced setup of a sub-joke. Absolutely had a lot of love with this. I, I didn't look away from the TV once. I was expecting it to be one of them that as I'm watching it, like my phone is coming up going, uh-huh. but no, I was caught up, belly laughing and thoroughly engaged in the heart of the film. Okay, you might have uh, you might have convinced me for next time. Other couple of films that I've seen that I just want to quickly mention because I mentioned them last week as they were coming to the services. Uh, to Olivia, which is on Sky, and it was about Roald Dahl and his Hollywood actress wife, Patricia Neal, when they lose one of their children and how their relationship is strained as a result, and they start to fall apart. And it's a it's a life story film that does pretty much exactly what you expect it to. It's charmingly acted by Hugh Bonneville and Keely Hawes, but overall it's rather whimsical and lacking. And whilst the, the, the whole subplot of the film is that Dahl is trying to get his writing back on track, that he's been struggling with. And obviously the book that he ends up writing is the one that becomes his most beloved, Charlie in the Chocolate Factory. It's worth a watch. It does exactly... Did you see that one about um, J.R.R. Tolkien a few years ago? Yeah, um, which was okay, which kind of uh, was a... You know, there was some very, very pointed and on-the-nose references to sort of the archetype during his experiences in, in World War One. Um, I'm not a big biopic fan unless you can do something very, very different with that kind of genre. Yeah, well, this doesn't do anything different. It is very much comparable to that Tolkien one that I've referenced. If there's nothing else to watch, an entertaining diversion at best. Um, I Care A Lot landed as well on Amazon. And this is the one which has Rosamund Pike and Peter Dinklage in a dark comedy where Rosalind Pike is using legal beans to get the court to put people under her care that she takes control of all their finances and then she puts them in a home and fleeces them for all that she gets. Her latest mark turns out to have an, a shady past of her own and connections to the Russian mob and so she's forced to level up a game and refuses to back down despite what threats are getting thrown at her. Now Rosamund Pike is magnificent in this film and Peter Dinklage is joyously sinister as the head of this Russian mafia and the film is entertaining but the problem that I have with it 
is that it's a film in which you're not actually sure who you're supposed to be rooting for throughout the whole film because everyone is as terrible moralistically as each other. The film starts off for the first half and it's quite dark in its comical approach. It does a satire kind of approach. But then the second half just becomes a, a typical crime drama and loses that style and touch that the first half had. It's a mixed bag. I don't care a lot for it. I did care a bit, but I don't care a lot. So uh, you're going to have to be hiding under a rock to know that probably the biggest series in the world right now is WandaVision. And every week we have been doing a little little look back onto our thoughts of WandaVision. So, Andy, WandaVision Episode 7. killed Sparky too. <laughs> yes, as we predicted, it was Agatha all along. <laughs> that song is <laughs> going to become a, a cult classic. I know it is. So we're kind of <laughs> none the wiser, really, uh, about exactly how the Westview anomaly was created. But what we do know is that classic Jack Kirby, Stanley character, Agatha Harkness, is as far as we know, behind the uh, behind the hex and is the villain behind what we thought was the villain. Uh, and yes. also we've now kind of looking at uncovering the true identity of Pietro. We've got that to contend with uh, in the upcoming episode. And it was also the... It was the, the, an origin story of a of a, a new superhero. So yeah, the the character that in the comics was the very first female Captain Marvel because uh, Carol Danvers was uh, uh, Miss Marvel at the time. Yep, who later became Spectrum and then Photon, and that's Monica Rambeau. Yeah, and, and Monica Rambeau's mother was nicknamed as uh, as Photon in 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 a in a poster on the wall. So yeah, we got to see the origin of a of a, of a new character, which I'm I'm pretty sure will play out into whatever sort of the next legacy version of the Avengers will be, because we'll have Miss Marvel, yeah. we'll have a new Hawkeye. So, um, yeah, it was, it, was a, it was a good episode. Um, it was done in this modern family style of, of talking to the camera, uh, and then it had the reveal as to, um, to who Agatha was. But I kind of feel that she's not the she's not the big bad i still think there's a big bad and and that is as i said before is it pietro is it the husband that we keep hearing uh are we hearing about ralph so it's interesting to see where it's going to turn out we know from the comics that agatha harkness has her own agenda but she kind of coached um wanda in the comics to tap into her powers and expand their powers and that's what i'm seeing she's done here she's pushed wanda to use her powers to greater effect. She's teaching Wanda whilst manipulating the events. I do think there's someone else behind it, and I do think it might be Nicholas Scratch. 
that's who I think um, Pietro actually is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Mephisto has been hinted at time and time and time again. But I do think there's... uh, We've got to start introducing now. We've only got two episodes left. Then we've got to start really working on who who the big bad is and... um, uh, and where it's going to go from there. We also saw that Sword is is behind this thing called uh, Project Cataract uh, with uh, Hay- the Haywood character trying to revive Vision and turn him into a sentient weapon. And that's why Wanda stole him in the first place. So it was, it was kind of subtle, wasn't it? There was a lot going off, but there were sort of subtle reveals. Yeah. Uh, most importantly, this was the first episode of the series that had a mid-credit sting. Yes, that a lot of people didn't pick up on and had to go back and rewatch because <laughs> most of us get up early in the morning so we avoid spoilers and then read about it later on. And it's only when we read about it later on, it's like, oh, go back. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's built up well. The last couple of episodes are up and coming and can't wait. Okay. Um, additionally, over this next week, there's a couple of things to keep a lookout for. And on Now TV, there's the United States versus Billy Holiday. And on Netflix, there's Josh Trank's gangster drama, Capone, which tells of the last days of Al Capone as his dementia starts to see him confusing his past activities with his current life. And we get to see Josh Trank out of Director Jail that we mentioned earlier. Yes, that that's two films that I'll probably talk about next week. And that's it for this week. But before we go, and we do this every week, we talk about what we've seen, watched, heard, played, just what has been a real neat thing. Andy, what's your neat thing? Well, I did promise last week that we would mention it this week. And you might have noticed it was absent from my talking about what's worth watching on the streaming. And that is Disney Plus launched their star content this week. And boy, have I lost myself in a hive of content. <laughs> I mean, the All seasons have lost on there, which when I was browsing through the synopses for it, I was quite amused to see that someone had a lazy day at work because episode four, walkabout, a group of people are trapped on an unknown island. Episode five, white rabbit, a group of people are trapped on an unknown island. (laughs) Episode six, a group of people are trapped on an unknown island. Someone clearly couldn't be bothered typing out the synopses properly. Uh, But the content overall, there's some Wes Addison films in there. There's some missing. No Tenenbaums, for example. Yeah, I didn't notice that. Family Guy's in there, Castle, Bones, Buffy, more movies than you can wave a pointy stick at. There's, I've already got lined up to watch Night Watch, Day Watch, Starship Troopers, One Hour Photo, I'm going to watch MASH again, Life Aquatic, In America, Kung Pao. Seriously, there's a load of content in there. And basically, if I'm not going back to work until the end of May, <laughs> at least I've got three months of um, TV and movie viewing to work on there's a, there was a couple of things missing that i'd been promised i i didn't spot mash when i looked through it and i didn't spot jojo rabbit which i know some uh, some regions have got i found mash while searching for something else so it is within there it's just not listed in the prime section if you go into the categories and go through comedy you should be able to find it right Right. So there's, there's, uh, yeah, I, I've not started on it. I, I did a quick check to see what was on and I highlighted some of the stuff that I'll be watching. It definitely gave me a reason if I, if I needed one to go back and watch all the Wes Anderson stuff in there. So, uh, I was looking forward to arachnophobia, which was listed at one point, but I couldn't find yet and did a search on it. Still not there, but I'm guessing we're going to be getting more content as, as we, as we go through, but it, I'm always a sucker for watching uh, Firefly again. And so, yeah, yeah it's, it's going to keep me busy. Okay, my neat thing is another recommendation from you, actually. 
uh, and it was your neat thing, in fact, last week, and um, Ted Lasso, which you turned me on to. Now, there's there's something about Ted Lasso which, when I kind of read about it, I kind of didn't think it would be the series for me. It was uh, it's about football. I have no interest in football whatsoever. I'd had heard good things about it, but when you when you said you've got to go and watch Ted Lasso, I watched it, and by the first episode, I liked it. By episode two, I really liked it. And by episode three, I think I binged everything uh, and absolutely loved yeah. it. And we watched it. Uh, my partner and I watched it and we absolutely adored it. And you know why I adored it? It's not just it was great performances. It wasn't the fact that they didn't do uh, the whole England America thing, which I thought is exactly what we, what we would do. I thought it would be, oh, this is how they do things in the States. This is how they do things in England. I thought it had heart and I thought it was just pure joy. And I could see how people could think, think Ted is a, is annoying character, but you know what? It was just, it was just uplifting. You know, we talked about Paddington earlier. It's exactly what I liked yeah. about Paddington. It, it, there's no stress in it. I found the episode, uh, the last episode when it, when it's the playoff between, uh, Richmond uh, and Man City. I, I found it was tense. I can understand why people like um, uh, like football, but I would if this is football, I would rather watch it in a half hour bite. And it's called Ted Lasso, yeah. and I absolutely loved it. It's the little touches as well. It's uh, the, the the cookies that he takes her every morning. Yeah. Um, in the nice little pink box, and then it was was it on episode four or five that he's he's upset with her, and he puts it down. And says, "I hope that that they don't taste as good." And then he goes, "Damn it, they're the best batch I've made." And it's then that you realise, oh, he's not buying them; he's cooking them every yeah. morning. <laughs> and oh, it, it's just infectiously charming, and I can't wait for season two to land later this year it, it, it is it was it's a it's a simply uplifting program and in in these days you know you could you could take it all and be cynical about it but that was what worked about it, it was the lack of, of the cynical and the and each character develops into into a way that they are empowered by ted and absolutely loved it and that's it for this week uh join us again next week with our well, a, a podcast full of, of, of just geek fun and, and information. What more do you need? Andy, are you going to look after yourself? Are you better? Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm more positive. So I'm still basically just watching films and watching TV shows, but that's because there's too much to watch. There's too <laughs> much to watch. And they're just adding more onto your plate. I, when I go back to work, I don't know how I'm going to cope. <laughs> I'm interested in to know what that first film will be that we'll, uh, that we'll get to see. So... Yeah. Before we go, hey, taking on a challenge is a lot like riding a horse. If you're comfortable while you're doing it, you're probably doing it wrong. 